0: to pound the rock to score's nba podcast my name is joseph casharo and i am joined as always by co-host joe wolf on what's going on cash we made it to the all-star break another one of those kind of not milestones but like what would you call it checkpoints in the season where it's like all right we made it to this you know where the all-star break it's the unofficial halfway point in the regular season but in terms of like the overall nba calendar if you consider from like October through June preseason through the finals is basically the smack dab middle point. It's like four months in or four months from the finals, couple months from the playoffs. Good time to kind of check in around the league, get a sense and a pulse of what's going on. And we figured today we would maybe catch up on a couple lingering post deadline topics, whether that be perhaps trades that weren't made reportedly or Who knows, maybe stray thoughts we have um, that we didn't get to last week on some of the deals that were or weren't made. And then we're going to conclude the show in the second half after the break by talking about the second half storylines that most fascinate and intrigue us. So Wolfon, let's get right to it. Lingering post-deadline thoughts. What are you thinking on this fine Friday afternoon? So
1: I'm thinking... I guess first and foremost that if Embiid can get back and get back up to the level he was playing at before his injury, I feel pretty good about where the Sixers are at. And I had kind of mixed thoughts when we talked about it after the deadline because I liked them getting healed. And boy, has he looked good in his first couple of games there. But I was a little bit concerned about the lack of secondary shot creation, sending out Beverly. Uh, in exchange for Payne, who I just feel like is a worse player in general, kind of on both sides of the ball. And I did say it seems like they're lining up to sign uh, Kyle Lowry as a buyout guy. And the moves they made, including getting off of James Springer, allowed them to get under the tax to the point that they were able to sign Lowry as a guy who was making more than the MLE before his buyout. And that if they managed to do that, I would feel a lot better about this. And I just think that's a wonderful addition for them. A guy, obviously him and Nick Nurse are very familiar with one another, but I think he just fills a lot of needs for them. Did
0: you see Nick Nurse's comments on Lowry a couple days ago? Not that I think like anyone will be surprised by them, but him saying that uh,
1: no one in his entire
0: coaching career that's overseas, that's in the NBA, like no one has competed at the level Kyle Lowry competes again I don't think anyone's surprised by that observation but it's still interesting to hear Nick Nurse who's coached Kawhi Leonard who coaches Joel Embiid right now who has coached all over the world say that no this guy competes more than anyone I have ever coached
1: yeah and I just think for Lowry at this stage of his career what he doesn't do well anymore isn't that big of a deal for what Philly is going to be asking him to do like He's going to be coming off of the bench. They just need him to be a steady hand and provide that sort of off the dribble creation and make good decisions and organize the offense when, say, Tyrese Maxey is off the floor. I also think those two guys can play very functionally together. Like Lowry, even at his advanced age, is still a really strong defender and just an ingenious player who I think... You know, like I wouldn't be shocked to see them closing playoff games with him in the mix. Yep, and you know he's not the shooter that he once was, but I think he's still enough of a threat and still a really good off-ball mover to the point that he can open up the floor for them. So yeah, I I, I love that addition. And then you have Healed, who obviously it's it's going to look different when he's there playing off of Embiid, but right now I've been kind of surprised by the level of offensive primacy that they've given him. Uh they put the ball in his hands a lot. You know, he's running a decent amount of pick and roll. He's averaged like eight assists per game, I think, since he got there. And I, I just think, yeah, the option to have him, I mean, we've seen, again, like the the DHO game with MB when he has that type of a movement shooter to work with can be so effective. And now that ability to do it not just with Maxi, but also with Buddy Heald and then even with Maxi and Heald like the two-man game between them you don't necessarily think of like guard guard actions as being something that you'll see teams go to a lot but I mean that was a huge part of the Pacers offense this season was Heald and Halliburton running those actions together and even though you might think that's something that is switchable the speed at which they run it and Heald in particular who I think is like one of the best and most prolific ghost screeners and shooters off of ghost screens in the league, just creating that moment of hesitation is usually enough to create an opening for one of those two guys. And whether it's two guys that wind up going with Maxi on a play like that, and then Heald is popping open for three, and he doesn't need a lot of space to get that off, or the hesitation like two guys maybe initially going with Heald, and if you saw how that worked for Halliburton, like allowing him a lane to get into the teeth of the defense. I mean, Maxi is just that much quicker with his first step than Halliburton is. So I think that that can be extremely deadly as well. So I, I like his fit there. And again, all of this comes down to MP and whether he can make it back, but if he can, I think that they have really upgraded their team and that's going to be a super dangerous team come playoff time.
0: This is a bit of a, I guess a melding of our first and second segments today, because w- my top second half storyline was going to be if and when Joel Embiid gets back Um, and what the Sixers look like after that based on what we've seen from them so far post-deadline without Embiid so I guess we've knocked that topic off the list in in this first segment which is fine because it also counts as like a you know post-deadline thought given how healed and the new look Sixers look and also just what they might look like once Kyle Lowry gets in there I'm with you in that like yeah he's obviously not the player he once was he's not like you know second best player on a championship team anymore, but he can still be a very useful veteran player in a postseason setting. You know, it doesn't mean he has to be playing 30 minutes, but like he can give you quality minutes and he can potentially close, like you said, in certain lineups against certain teams in certain matchups. So just please, basketball gods, medical gods, knee gods, allow Joel Embiid to get back in this lineup for the end of the season at something close to full strength. That's not, you know, detrimental
1: to his future health. And if, if there are six- knee gods, cash. If knee gods exist, they're not working in Joel Embiid's favor. I'm sorry to say, <laughs> Like All right. They're the wrong gods well, then, to be appealing to in this knee case. Knee
0: Satan that Joel Embiid apparently worships. Somebody, for the love of God, get this behemoth back on the court healthy. Get Kyle Lowry in this lineup. Keep the rest of the team like fairly healthy and. And just let me see what it looks like because funnily enough, over the years, like they lo- like Ben Simmons has gone in and out and then James Arden is gone and they never really replaced that level of star quality. But it's like this ends up being their best chance to win probably since Jimmy Butler was there. If Embiid can get back healthy. So I really hope he can. Yeah. Um,
1: I wonder too, you know, how much we'll see them experiment with like three guard lineups. Yeah. Because you got you know, between now Maxi healed, Melton, and Lowry, that's a sort of interesting mix that you can probably mix and match with a bit to to find some three-guard lineups that work uh, with a little bit more two-way balance than you were able to achieve with those types of lineups in the past. And it's like, you know, the Sixers aren't great on the wing. I think Tobias Harris has been very solid this season. Batum's actually been great for them since they acquired him, but... I could see in certain situations where it maybe makes more sense to have three of those guards out there with like one of Harris or Batum at the four next to Embiid. And then you're maximizing your spacing ideally without giving too much back at the defensive end of the floor. Although they would be pretty small in those alignments, but there are certain teams against whom that can work. You know, like you don't get burned too badly for going small against some of these other teams. Um, so, yeah, lots to be interested in uh, with that team, assuming that Embiid can make yeah. it back healthy. Because if not, then none of this really matters.
0: Yeah, it's a, what, seven foot two, 300 pound assumption? Okay, th- not 300 pounds, but a very large assumption. Um, so, last week, when in our actual official post deadline episode, I mentioned to you very quickly, we didn't have time to really get into it, how the Lakers being like a non mover at the deadline, to me just spoke to the fact that like there's no saving this team this year, right? You're Like everyone remembers last year, they went from play and afterthought to Western Conference finalists based on the moves they made in the middle of the year. And so like blindly optimistic fans just assumed Rob Polinka could maybe pull another deadline day rabbit out of his hat. The only question was, who is it going to be, right? DeJounte Murray, Tyus Jones, Colin Sexton, a reunion with Alex Caruso. And, you know, obviously Polinka and the Lakers didn't end up doing anything. And, yeah, I I mentioned how I think it was just because he probably knows, and I think most people watching know, like there was just no saving this team this year. But since the deadline, the Lakers have won three in a row they've won six of seven overall and three of those six wins have been road wins in boston new york and utah which is a super impressive trio of wins now they're still in ninth but they're closer to the top six 3.5 games back than they are to 11th four games ahead so uh they got dinwiddie now i mean i'm not really sold on that being the saver that uh, some lakers fans think it is But I did want to get your take on it because I'm still of the mind that there's no saving this team this year in terms of contention and like genuinely, you know, challenging for a championship or even to make the same kind of run they made last year to the West Finals. But I did want to get your thoughts on it. Like based on what you've seen from them the last couple of weeks, some of these impressive wins, D'Angelo Russell coming on and all of a sudden looking like a pretty good player again. It, It has anything that has happened over the last two weeks in this stretch changed your opinion of what this Lakers team can be this year or do you just see it as like no it's a hot stretch from a team that obviously has top tier
1: talent but isn't good enough overall yeah I mean I think so a big part of it is just they've shot the ball way better like they're all the way up to 13th in three-point percentage after languishing pretty much in the basement for the first couple months of the season D'Lo's hot streak is a huge part of that but You know, you've also got Reeves shooting the ball very well. Hachimura shot the ball really well. Um, And I think, like, it's interesting after all the lineup juggling that we talked about and that kind of got Darvin Ham in hot water with his players, which we talked about and I sort of understood from the perspective of, and I even mentioned this at the deadline last year, which I very much liked their deadline last year. But what I said at the time was that You know, they kind of went out and acquired a bunch of one-way players in Vanderbilt, Russell, and Beasley. And, you know, it. yes, those guys helped them close out the season strong, helped them get to the conference finals. But by the end of that playoff run, all three of those guys were functionally out of the Lakers rotation. And so I think a lot of the mixing and matching and lineup juggling that was happening for most of this season was a result of of not being able to find that two-way balance because there weren't, you know, outside of LeBron and AD, really any two-way players on the roster. So, like Vanderbilt was injured to start the season, came back, took a while to get going, and then was like a, like a very helpful player. Like, really helped their defense and also was able to help them offensively because he was put in the right context to succeed in spacier lineups and helped their offensive rebounding, which was a big weakness for them before he got healthy. He's now done for possibly the rest of the season. So what they like stumbled on is a weird way to put it because it's like the lineup that helped get them to the conference finals last year. But we're finally seeing that lineup again, you know, that starting group succeed uh, with Russell Reeves, Hachimura, LeBron, and AD. It's like come all the way for full circle to, I think a lineup that a lot of Lakers fans have just wanted to see get more run from the start of the season. I'm not entirely sure why Hachimura hasn't played more up to this point, but he's been in and out of the line with injuries too, right? He's been in and out with injuries, but like even, I mean, he's been all told, I don't think he's missed more than like 12 games, Yeah, but it's just in the games that he's played, he's only averaged like 24 minutes a game. And now he's getting more run (laughs) and He's proved proven to be really helpful, which is, I mean, it's doubly surprising because of the big deal they gave him in the off season that he would be, treated as such a fringy rotation player. But uh, I think that starting group has really helped them get on track. Now, big picture, is Russell going to sustain this? Is Hachimura going to sustain this? Um, Is the shooting team-wide going to continue to be this good? I, I have my doubts. But I also... There's just a certain level of respect with this Lakers team. And you can even take it back like six weeks or so to when we did our episode kind of laying out who we feel like are true contenders in the league. And we both did include the Lakers, even though they were like hovering around 500 at the time. And we both kind of acknowledged that they were mid playoffs roll around. Let's say they get out of the play in or even, you know, there are, I think three and a half games out of the top six right now. So it's not entirely uh, out of the realm of possibility that they get into that, that, you know, playoffs proper range. But let's say they get out of the play-in and they're like the seventh seed and they're going up against OKC in the first round. I'd probably still pick OKC in that series because I think they're a better team. But like, would it shock anybody if the Lakers won that series given their experience advantage and the fact that with shorter rotations in the playoffs, maybe just having that that top two would carry the day? Like, I think there is certainly a path for them to make noise in the playoffs but I think they're going to be capped with the same kind of ceiling they had last year and I think it's less likely that they get to the conference finals this year because the conference is just better than it was so ultimately I guess that's where I come down on that but I continue to feel like they were right not to put a lot of stuff on the table in order to make what I think would have been a marginal upgrade at the deadline and to just keep their powder dry for the summer when they can trade three first rounders and make a more meaningful upgrade. And yeah, getting Dinwiddie for nothing on the buyout market will help them. I don't think it helps them a ton. Yeah. But, you know, it helps them a bit. <laughs> it definitely helps them a bit. I agree with all that, but my overarching
0: takeaway, even after the hot streak, is still that they made the right decision to not overpay. For a marginal upgrade at the deadline, when what they've looked like on the court is not close enough to a contender to justify that overpay for a marginal upgrade. And again, that might sound crazy given the respect we both give them and everyone gives them, and the fact that they have LeBron James and Anthony Davis still playing at the level they're playing at. But at some point, the facts are the facts. And this is something like I know. I've harped on this for years now with this Lakers team and people who have listened to this podcast for years have probably heard me talk about this basically for every iteration of the Lakers since they won that 2020 title. But if you look at the LeBron AD era in LA and you look at the year they won the title, even the following year when they lost in the first round of Phoenix, but like injuries really decimated that team and and stripped them of any chance they had to repeat. You look at those first two years with AD and LeBron together and last year when they eventually went to the West Finals. With LeBron and AD on the court together, the Lakers dominated teams in those three seasons. Even last year, before they made those moves, when they, those two were on the court together, the Lakers were pretty dominant, and it could encourage you to the point where like, okay, if we can just get the right guys we're not like, we can figure this out. This year, even in the nearly 1,200 minutes with LeBron and AD on the court together, because remember, like, AD... Has missed just four games this year. LeBron hasn't missed many, and they're both like AD's playing some of the best basketball of his career. LeBron is obviously still at worst, what, like a top fifteen player, if not a top ten player. But even with those two guys in the lineup all the time, playing twelve hundred minutes together, you know what the Lakers are in those twelve hundred minutes with both those guys on the court? Plus one, like it's like
1: plus one or two, yeah.
0: Plus one point six per one hundred possessions. Very pedestrian. If you look at like the league as a whole, essentially when the Lakers have these two still top 15 talents on the court at the same time, they play like the 12th best team in the league. If you want to look at it like that, like they are just not good enough to compete in this stacked Western conference. And so I think they made the right decision not to overpay. Um, You know, we'll see what happens in terms of like how, whether it's the play in the playoffs proper, the matchups, maybe just because of LeBron and AD, they have a shot to win a series or something or, put a scare into a team but i i just don't think there's enough here to genuinely compete for a title and again i I, that's a shame given how good lebron and ad still are and how available they've been to this team this year but those are just the facts and then like you know those same blindly optimistic fans that i was talking about who thought there was something out there that could save the lakers this year are now saying and are now clinging to these reports that well, uh, the Lakers are saving their ammo for the offseason when they'll have up to three first-round picks to trade. And names like Trey Young and Donovan Mitchell could be on the market. And like, okay, if a game-changing star becomes available, good luck pitting that modest collection of draft assets up against the treasure trove of picks. Teams like OKC, Utah, San Antonio, New Orleans, Brooklyn, New York, among others, can cobble together if any of those teams want to get in the mix. Like... I'm just not buying, okay, like the Lakers sat out the deadline, which is fine, it's fair. But I'm not buying, oh, they did that because then they're going to be able to make this much bigger move in the offseason. Like,
1: well, okay. it's It's a little bit different for the Lakers as it is for Miami. And I know it didn't work out for Miami with the Dame thing, but the difference is if it's the Lakers collection of assets versus a team like let's say it's donovan mitchell right and i'm not th- this is just like a total hypothetical mm-hmm. and i mitchell's been playing amazing with the Cavs, and we've talked about off air i think we both are really hoping that he just sticks around there mm-hmm. but a situation like that where it's a uh, you know if it's this summer it's an impending free agent right and they make it clear that they're not going to re-sign with a team that trades for them, unless it's like LA or Miami. Then that's when, oh, okay. Like these other teams aren't going to put their best stuff on the table for a one-year rental. Suddenly the Lakers, three first rounders and maybe Reeves and like whatever else they can cobble together might look like the best offer on the table. That's the sort of silver bullet that they have over most of these other teams. And that's why I think they can convince themselves that, yeah, actually what they have to offer might be good enough to get them that third star in the summer.
0: That's a very fair point.
1: But I mean, apart from that, like I, I'm i curious to see, actually. I mean, like this is, again, we're, we're like crossing over because this was one of my second half storylines. It's just like, I feel like there are these three pedigreed veteran teams that have been all over the map this season that I'm wondering, can they figure it out, put together a sustained run and once again be a problem in the playoffs that's the lakers the warriors and the heat basically and i think we're all going to be watching very closely to see as we get closer to the playoffs are they looking more like the teams that we've seen make deep playoff runs in the past even if they don't look especially inspiring during the bulk of the regular season
0: i think out of those three teams the one I probably trust the most to flip that switch and potentially turn into the team we thought they could be is Miami. Is just, that just because they play in the East, though? Exactly. It's a combination of how recently they've... Literally, they just did it last year. And two, their competition. Like, yeah, the Warriors won a championship two years ago. They still have Steph Curry, you know, playing out of his mind. But the West is stacked, as we just talked about. The Lakers, LeBron and AD are playing great, but they've played great all year and the lakers have been mid all year so i, I just don't think there's anything there and they play in that same stacked conference as the warriors do the heat you know obviously boston's the best team in the league but if the matchups break the break the right way we've also seen how miami's troubled boston in the past like it it's just a lot more believable it's something i can actually envision with the heat whereas with the
1: warriors and lakers in this year's west i just can't i can't so let me throw another team into that mix okay how are you feeling about Phoenix right now? And specifically what you've seen since they added Royce O'Neal. Cause we didn't talk about that addition a ton in our deadline episode, but I did really like it for them. And I feel like I like it even more after I've seen him play a couple of games there, especially as a guy who can help fill out their Durant at center lineups on the wing, like a guy who he's only six, four, but functionally, he plays bigger than that. Like He has functional size in a way that I feel like a lot of their other wings don't. And a lot of the time when they've rolled out those KD at five lineups this year, it's been tiny. You know, with like uh, Grayson Allen, like Eric Gordon basically playing the four, you know, with like Grayson Allen and Booker uh, and Beal filling that lineup out and having a guy who can still keep the floor spaced because he can really shoot it but can also guard up. He can guard down as needed. Um, He brings that sort of defensive positional versatility that I feel like is going to make those lineups more dangerous, more functional at both ends. And kind of under the radar too, adding Thad Young as a buyout guy who doesn't move especially well at this stage, but still has so much veteran savvy. And I think maybe most importantly, like, for as much as Nurkic gets clowned for the things that he doesn't do well, his connective passing has been so essential to keeping their offense humming. And like the difference from him to Eubanks when they make that switch is stark. And like their offense is something like nine points per hundred possessions worse with Nurkic off the floor. For that reason, they just don't have the same kind of side-to-side juice, and they really miss that connective passing in the middle of the floor. And that's something, you know, if they're going from Nurkic to Thad, it's maybe not going to help them that much defensively or on the boards, but at least that part of the equation can remain very solid. Like, he's going to give them that short roll playmaking that that they lose when Nurkic goes to the bench as of now.
0: Yeah. First of all, anyone still clowning Yusuf Nurkic for what he doesn't do is a clown themselves because like get over it like not every player is perfect and two I don't really know what anyone expected Yusuf Nurkic to be with this Sunstein but I think he's delivered and then some based on like what was expected of him what the Suns needed from him yeah like and he's played all but three games which is maybe the most important thing that's what I'm saying like between his availability and what he's actually given them on the court, anyone who wanted more than this or expected more than this from Yusuf Nurkic is a clown themselves. He's been fine. He's In in his role, he's been great for them this year. Uh, I think we mentioned it last week, if maybe I'm thinking of a conversation we had off air, but like they traded some of that fake depth we talked about for real depth in Royce O'Neal. And then they signed Fad Young, who, you know, sitting here in Toronto, we've watched him probably more than most the last couple of years because he doesn't play that often. But when he did, This guy was a pro's pro who was always ready when his number was called and was still providing like valuable NBA rotation player stuff on the court, whether it is that short roll playmaking, whether it's his ability to be like a small ball five or a small ball big, hold his own defensively. I think adding Royce O'Neal and Thad Young to this Suns team gives them more legitimate playoff caliber depth and that's huge for this team. But if you want my overall take on the Suns, It's still that I just don't trust them. Because look, even a couple nights ago, Bradley Beal left with a hamstring injury. Now, the all-star break is here. You could say, well, they're just holding him out now as a precaution and he'll get a week off. And yeah, that's fair. That's great. But like, I just don't trust that this team is going to be whole when it matters most. And yeah, it's not even a knock on them. Some players and teams, whether it's age-related or body-related, just aren't durable. And I think this Suns team is one of those teams. So look, if you can promise me that they can be something close to full strength come April. Of course, they've got a shot given the top end talent on the team and the fact that they've now addressed some of my concerns with their depth and defense, but like trusting that they're going to be healthy is a big component in what we've said five times now is a really stacked West.
1: Yeah. It's definitely a little bit concerning that Durant at age 35 with his history of lower body injuries, is playing 37 minutes a game because that's how much they've had to rely on him with how thin they've been and the way that injuries have affected them elsewhere. I mean, he's been healthy. He's been durable. He's played amazing. But that would give me some concern for sure. sure. Um, but if they can stay healthy, I mean, they, to me, are as dangerous as anybody just because of how difficult their offense at top flight is to deal with and all the different ways that they can hurt you and the way that they can just stretch defenses to their breaking point with the amount of shooting and playmaking and isolation scoring that they can put on the floor at one time. So I think that that still has to be accounted for. It is worth noting they've played, I think by most metrics, the easiest schedule in the league so far. So We'll see what all this looks like in in the second half or the unofficial second half when things get tougher. But I've been pretty impressed with how they've looked recently and particularly because the Durant at five thing was not working early in the season. And it's looked a lot better over the last month or so. Really, when it started to turn for me was that huge comeback that they had. Uh, against Sacramento when they came back from 22 down in the fourth quarter, engineering that comeback almost entirely with Durant at five. And so O'Neal helps with that, with the different kind of lineup flexibility that it gives them, but also just KD himself and how good he has been defensively when they've moved him to the five has been a big part of making that work. So I'll be watching that to see, you know, can that sustain? But I guess if we wanted to add another team to that category, like these, these pedigreed veteran teams where we're like, Watching to see, can they put it all together in the second half? I'd put the Suns in that group as well. And again, under the radar, but Royce O'Neal, Thad Young, I think both those guys can help with that.
0: Yeah. Okay. Not a veteran pedigreed team, but one that I just wanted to quickly talk about as a post deadline kind of stray thought. Last week, one of the things we didn't get to that I wanted to mention was just that like, I was a little bummed for the Jazz just because, you know, it's the second year in a row. They kind of, not to the same extent as they did last year. They, it wasn't like a whole fire sale. But for the most part, they punted on being in the play race again in order to cobble together some future-minded assets. And look, I, in general, I understand that strategy based on like where they are in the competitive cycle. Like I get it. But at the same time, like they traded three of their top nine rotation players, including a guy that I still think, could be a solid two-way player, Nochai Baji and uh, Simone Fontecchio, who was a starter and also only an RFA this year, so they, you know, still had somewhat team control over him, and they traded all that for, like, picks in 2024, which, again, we don't have to tell you for the 100th time, the people that cover these things claim this is the worst draft class in at least a decade, if not longer. So, I guess I didn't really see much of the point in it for the jazz where it's like, okay, you're going to subtract, you're going to detract from this year's team and like hurt your chances of playing potentially postseason basketball when you've got Larry in playing the way he is and you've got Colin Sexton developing into the kind of player he is and, and, and all this potential fine because of where you are in your cycle. But then to do that for like what I didn't really see as much future upside bothered me a little bit. And it bothered me even watching them last night, in a really competitive game against the Warriors where they had this really great comeback down uh, down the stretch. John Collins threw one of the worst passes I've ever seen. It cost him the game.
1: Just after while, grabbing a monster offensive yes, rebound yes, too. Like, yes. And and I will say, like, not to get a sidetracked here, but I thought it was just kind of cool watching Sexton yes. like in his ear, pumping him up after that. And like, I don't know, man, I just love everything that I've seen from Sexton this year. Like he's been so good, so fun. And I thought that moment right there just sort of spoke to what he actually is as a teammate. And I don't think people have ever really given him his due for that because of some of the issues with his play style, maybe. But I just think he's been awesome uh, on an individual and a team level this year. So I wanted to shout that out.
0: No, great point. Something I had in my notes, something I actually tweeted about last night when I said like this game dubs... Jazz was super fun, but my favorite moment of the game was Colin Sexton going out of his way to like try so hard to cheer up John Collins and like be a good teammate after he made that pass that everyone's going to clown him for. Um but that, like that's all part of it and I'm watching that team yeah. being like, "Man, I really hate that." Like I understand it, but I really hate that this team's chances of like playing postseason basketball were stripped away 2 years in a row and this year for an upside that I don't really see as much. Now Having said all that, I also just wanted to quickly talk about Sexton who since being put in the starting lineup on December 13th is averaging 21.5 points and 5.5 assists on 51-42-86 shooting while winning his minutes and playing something much closer to like two-way basketball. You know, I think for a long time, his defense was like more just kind of like misplaced energy and movement without actually being effective. And I'm not saying he's like a shutdown perimeter defender now, but I think this year he's made strides where like that energy is being channeled to something closer to like positive defense. The Jazz should be absolutely thrilled with the player he's turning into. That moment with Collins to me speaks to the kind of like young leader he's becoming too and maturing player he is. And I just think in general, like when you start thinking about the player he's becoming, what Lowry marketing is, what I think Walker Kessler could be, Obviously, the Jazz have something really promising here. They've got more draft equity and trade capital than probably any team, but OKC, maybe San Antonio. There, there's something here. And then also, when you talk about Sexton, like he's going to make less than $19 million in each of the next two seasons. Him, in, and then Kessler, who's still on his rookie scale deal, make less than $40 million combined next year. Clarkson's on a reasonable deal. There is a lot of flexibility here when you think about the trade capital too that like they can make a significant move and get pretty damn good pretty quickly so my post-deadline takeaway or thought on the Jazz is that I'm bummed that they're not getting the chance to really chase postseason basketball again this year but I really hope that this all leads to like some sort of not all-in move but like win now move in some respect relatively soon because i think this core and to be honest will hardy too who seems like he can flat out coach i think this core will hardy like they deserve even this fan base man who's now watched two years in a row a surprisingly plucky team just have to bow out of the race post deadline i think they all deserve to like see what this team can truly be in a competitive environment and i hope that happens as soon as next year because i think they deserve it.
1: yeah agreed on that i mean i do think from the looks of it they have eyes on keeping their top 10 protected pick this year. Yeah. And that probably had a lot to do with them selling at the deadline. And I think there was only so much selling they could actually do without detracting from the core they see themselves building moving forward. Like, uh, they could have traded Clarkson, I guess, if they wanted to maybe go further in that direction. But I dislike the Fontecchio deal, you know, for thinking about this big picture. I dislike that one more than the Olenek and Abaji trade, just because, like, you know, they got a first-round pick, and, like, it, it's going to be a low first-round pick, but I they probably weren't going to re-sign Olenek anyway, and I don't think abaji has, like, showed me a ton in his first couple years to make me think that, like, they made a mistake giving up on him too early. Like, maybe I'll be proven wrong in that, but he just hasn't looked especially impressive to me. With Fontecchio, it's like he would have been an RFA and probably not too costly to keep. And I agree with you that I think they could start turning this into like a very competitive situation pretty quickly. And he would just be like a perfect complimentary piece to be part of that. And if they could have just signed him to like a reasonable RFA deal, which I very much think they could have, then I would rather have that than, it, the second round pick that they got, even acknowledging that it's going to be a good second rounder. It's going to be, it's like the, the better of, I think Memphis and Washington. So looking like the 32nd or 33rd pick in the draft, probably. I think I still would rather have Fontecchio. Like, yeah, he's, he's what? He's 28. So he's not like, 37, 28. Yeah. But that, so what? Like you sign him for the next three years and th- those are functionally going to be his prime years and you want to have- Good, good connectors back. and complementary pieces around the the young core as you try to pivot to being competitive. Um, so I don't know. I think mainly it was about them keeping their pick this year and then stockpiling more assets. But I think ultimately it's it's good stuff. Big picture, like they, I I, I don't know. Is Sexton like a foundational piece for them moving forward? I guess we'll see. But I definitely think you know Markin Kessler, Keontae George, probably Taylor Hendricks, their lottery pick from this last year um and and possibly sexton as well that's sort of what they have foundationally moving forward and they're well positioned to build out the team around that core and i totally agree about will hardy like i'm they just run i think the most interesting stuff uh in the league like stuff that you don't see other teams running tylu said
0: last year that he thinks will yeah, hardy so I remember that uh, yeah has brought um offensive I can't remember we used the word sets, but he he's brought offensive sets or actions to the NBA that the league had never seen before. That's what Ty Lue said about Will Hardy last year.
1: Yeah, and I like I, I could spotlight like some of the actions. I won't like it's hard to essentially like explain it without the visual aid. But basically, they run so much like unpredictable stuff, decoy stuff that. Okay, I'll give you a stat, Cash, and and I'll see if you can guess. But basically, there is like one type of shot that the Jazz lead the league in this year. I'll see if you can guess what it is. A type of
0: shot? You mean like location-wise? Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know. I want to say like like,
1: catch and shoot threes or something like that. but No, it's dunks. The Jazz lead the league in dunks, which is like, you know, they're not a team that you would necessarily think that about, right? Like they don't have a ton of high flyers or guys who play above the rim. But what they do is a lot of stuff like off ball action that occupies defenders and opens up those opportunities for lobs and dunks from guys like Markin and Kessler. And I, you know, it's uh it's fun to watch. So I think they have a lot of pieces that, that are going to prove to be um, part of a successful future. But uh, I you know, if if I have a gripe, I guess, is that I feel like they could have benefited from keeping Fontecchio right. and his RFA rights around rather than dealing him for a second rounder. But I also understand the process behind what they're doing, mm-hmm. so.
0: Yeah, If um, it just real quick, if I had like a pie-in-the-sky wish that like I know it was never going to happen, but I wish these things were possible, it would be that in an alternate reality where Paul George is open to the idea as a free agent of going somewhere other than L.A. that's also not Indiana as a small market. It's that Paul George signed with the Jets. Because, like, man, you talk about, like, a star free agent skill set fitting in and completing a team that's already there.
1: Oh. There are, honestly, I mean, he's, like, one of the most plug-and-play stars in the league, right? So there's so many teams that you could envision him going to and just completing the puzzle. And uh, some of those teams are going to have cap space this summer, right? Like, I ultimately think almost certainly he's going to wind up re-signing with the clippers but it is fun to dream on him signing with like indiana okc utah like you mentioned all these teams where he just be such a perfect fit yeah and two of Um, which
0: he's already played for
1: yeah no exactly uh so yeah i mean uh, again i think he's just gonna wind up back with the clippers but uh he'd be he'd be super fun in any of those other places um I guess in terms of other like deadline stuff, did you want to talk about <laughs> Kyle Kuzma kiboshing a trade to the Mavs? Because we were talking about how relatively underwhelmed we were by their moves, given what they had to put on the table in order to get Daniel Gafford and PJ Washington in the door. They've looked good since acquiring those guys. So maybe that's forced a bit of reconsideration, even though the schedule hasn't been super tough. Yeah, no, that has not um, forced
0: an ounce of reconsideration on my part. <laughs>
1: But one of the things I asked you was like, you know, would you have felt better about this if the PJ Washington deal had been done for Kuzma instead? And you said a little bit better. And from the sounds of it, they had something comparable to that framework in place for Kuzma. And he said no, <laughs> which is like, okay. Um, and we say this all, all the time on this pod. It's like players can desire different things in different situations for all kinds of reasons, and that's fine. He's comfortable in Washington. He wants to be maybe more of a primary offensive guy than a guy who's, you know, more of a glorified role player spotting up next to Luca. That's fine. You know, like doesn't want to move. That's fine. Says he wants to build something, build a championship team in Washington. Okay. Uh how much patience do you have, Kyle Kuzma? How good anyway, do you think you are? I, I a, <laughs> do, do you have anything else to say about that?
0: I'll simply say that. I completely agree that okay for different players to have different desires and priorities and whatever. And I think it's completely understandable that he might not want to move, that he likes having a bigger offensive role. All that makes sense and is completely fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But all that said, I will just say that Kyle Kuzma being one of the guys who would prefer a bigger role on a garbage team is very much in line with like what I would have expected from Kyle Kuzma. <laughs> Doesn't mean there's anything wrong with
1: it. I just think it's predictable based on what I would expect from him. Um, the one other note that I just wanted to talk about briefly, because I, I don't think there's anything to say regarding the Warriors and Sixers trying to get LeBron at the deadline. Like they called, he said no. And that was the end of it. Right. Like how much I think the Lakers more is there no, to delve into Andrews there?
0: I said no. I think it's what? the story was
1: well i think so in in ramona Shelburne's reporting draymond reached out to rich paul to try like who also represents draymond yeah to see if he could basically convince lebron to push for a trade to golden state and yeah they were uh met with with a resounding no
0: yeah i the i can't remember who maybe it was the Shelburne, uh story i read as well on espn but the story i read was also that when the lakers Sorry, when the Warriors made the call to the Lakers to at least talk about it, Jeannie Buss told them, like, you know, on her side, they were not interested in moving LeBron. But then she directed them to reach out to Rich Paul. Like, I guess basically, like, you know, we don't want to trade him, but talk to Rich. Hey, if if he maybe wants to
1: leave, I guess. Yeah, talk to our shadow GM. Exactly.
0: (laughs) And then Paul also. So, you know, the Lakers don't want to move him, and he apparently doesn't want to move. But uh, that's still a, a really fascinating story.
1: Oh, for sure. I just... What can we really add to that? Exactly. Um, But what I did think was very interesting that I I do want to talk about a little bit more is that the Hawks and Spurs reportedly did have a conversation about Trey Young around the deadline. Yeah. And it seems like those conversations didn't get very far, but it's just one of those things. And I actually, like, I went on the Raptors show this week and Will and Blake asked me about this as well. And I just... Now that the idea is out there and in my head, I can't get it out of my mind. I want it to happen so badly. Trey and Wemby? I need to see Trey and Wemby together like I need oxygen cash. Yeah. like, And I was thinking, because they had kind of put me on the spot and I was thinking through it in real time, I was like, you know, I wonder, is Trey's passing in San Antonio almost less valuable? Because... He's such an incredible lob passer, but you almost don't need to be an incredible lob passer <laughs> to like play with Wemby. You just like throw the ball up anywhere in the vicinity of the rim. But I-, I don't actually think that's true. I think like we would be seeing them run such deadly and dynamic pick and rolls. We'd be seeing Trey throw like three quarter court alley-oops to Wemby and hit ahead passes. And I just think, I-, I-, I can't think of a more perfect pairing, honestly, for either of them. Because with Wemby, like you get just such an incredible creator and an amazing passer to set the table for you. And then for Trey, you get that incredible defensive safety net behind you. I don't know. I I feel like they got to revisit this in the offseason because I need to see it happen, Cash. Yeah, I think it would really benefit Trey to have
0: a 16-foot human uh, protecting things behind him and covering for his deficiencies. Absolutely. And, that's what I'm saying. It's yeah, like the perfect I'm, I'm pairing for both yeah. of them. I'm with you in that. I I now need to see it happen. And listen, like I mentioned it when I was talking about the Lakers and blindly optimistic fans, but like Spurs are one of those teams that have the goods to outbid teams like the Lakers. If a game changing star becomes available. And I think playing with Wemby would make Trey, more of the type of game-changing star people
1: think he can be. And here's the thing: I know people are going to say the Spurs are 11 and 44 this year. What are they th- like? It would be insane for them to hit the accelerator now. Here's my counter to that: Yes, they're 11 and 44. They also have a nearly plus two net rating when Trey Jones and Victor Wembanyama are on the floor together. That's not great, but that just shows you how. Even the most run of the mill type of game manager point guard next to Wemby turns the Spurs into a very competent team.
0: What do you say they were plus plus one point seven? So point 0.1 per one hundred better than the Lakers
1: when LeBron and Nadia are on the court this <laughs> yes, year. Exactly what you're telling. Okay, me. and that's with Wemby in his rookie year. And like I think the rate of acceleration in his feel for the game like how much better he's already gotten just over the course of his rookie year makes me feel like, okay, you upgrade from Trey Jones to Trey young. Yeah. And with Wemby in year two, I don't think it's out of the question that this team could be very competitive as early as next season.
0: Neither do I. And I also am a firm believer in that. Like, listen, I get that because of the way the CBA works and the rules, like, you know, guys are RFAs off the rookie scale deals and teams have the ability to extend them. And you can almost look at it as like, for the best players that are going to get maxed out, that are not going to turn down that money, you kind of have team control for like seven to nine years. I get that. But at the same time, with the way the new CBA is, and with the more punitive tax penalties coming, I also think it's going to become more imperative than ever that when you land the transcendent type of talents, like true, true blue superstars, that you... Build a competent team around them, and at like at least a semi-contending team around them as quickly as possible while they're still on their rookie scale deals, and you have more financial flexibility around them. It's something uh, you hear about in the NFL a lot, where teams will talk about trying to build contending teams around like a star quarterback while they're still on their rookie scale deal because of the hard cap in the NFL and all that. I think it's going to become more on vogue in the NBA to hear critics talking about this in the next coming year in the next couple of years about like building competitive teams around star players while still on their rookie scale contracts or at least getting the pieces in place while they're still on those contracts. And I think this is a perfect example of that. Like yeah, the Spurs are terrible record-wise this year. They also have one of the best young talents we've ever seen in the game of basketball who impacts the game in crazy ways already at 19, 20 years old and who with competent guard play can probably help the Spurs be genuinely competitive as soon as next year.
1: Yeah, and also Trey's 25. Exactly. So it's not like that would preclude a long runway for them to continue to grow together and be very, very good well into the future. So that's, I mean, obviously that's contingent on the Hawks actually being willing to move him and those two sides being able to find uh, a price that is satisfactory uh, for both of them. But like, I just, since that idea has entered my brain, I can't get it out. I, I don't blame
0: you. You've planted that seed in my brain. And like the Spurs' chances of competing, it's growing rapidly. <laughs> All right. Is that, are we good for uh straight thoughts yes. post-deadline? You want to take the yes. break, come back and talk some second half storylines that we didn't already touch on? Let's do it. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's fantasy football podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download The Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, well, fun second half storylines we've already touched on. You know, if Embiid gets back and the Sixers, and um, I don't remember what you said your second half storyline was that we already touched on, but oh, just like w- whether the Lakers can oh, right. can get yeah. it together. But yeah. okay, so so let's get to some other ones. Give me another one of your second half storylines to watch.
1: So it's something I've mentioned a couple times already, but the race for the top three seeds in the East, and really seeds two and three, because Boston is looking like they're going to run away with uh, the number one seed. So I think now Miami could complicate this by getting things together and becoming the terrifying playoff opponent that they've been. In the last four postseasons so i don't want to discount them and their devil magic and the way that they seem to level up every spring but for right now there have been five teams that have kind of separated themselves at the top of the east and for everybody else i think they are probably going to be looking to avoid playing one of those other uh five teams in the first round and then like you've mentioned before As a, you know, it's something where you can't be thinking about it right now, but as an ancillary benefit, if you do get out of the first round, then you potentially avoid seeing the Celtics until the conference finals also. So in that mix, it's the Cavs, Bucks, Knicks, and Sixers. And, um, you know, the Cavs are playing the best of those teams right now, but they're also the healthiest. And, you know, they... Dealt with their spate of injuries exceptionally well, and that's why they're positioned in the way that they are right now. They have the inside they are, track for sure, they're the favorite to land the two seed to me. Uh, and the Sixers obviously all that uncertainty with Embiid. Um, the Knicks are without Randall for a while longer, without OG for a while longer, without Mitchell Robinson possibly for the rest of the year. By the way, Um, they're super banged up.
0: Hartenstein also has been dealing with an Achilles issue the last few games after him filling in for Robinson the way he did made everyone think, okay, even if Robinson can't come back, they can still hit their ceiling. Just real quick, can the Knicks get healthy in time was actually one of my second half storylines, but I think it dovetails perfectly into this conversation about the race for the top three seeds in the East.
1: Yeah, I mean, right now they have Precious Achua playing 40 plus minutes a game. That's how banged up they are, particularly in the front court they've lost four in a row because of it. Like their last
0: game, they were missing six of their best nine players.
1: Yeah, because I think DiVincenzo didn't play in that one either. Yeah, And God, has he been good. Yeah. But a lot of these guys are just overstretched right now. And I think we're really starting to see that catch up to them. So definitely really want to see them get whole because they were looking very frightening before the injury bug hit. And again, right now, it's just like the Cavs are sort of cruising and have a chance to put some distance between them and the rest of this field. But the Bucks are also dealing with injuries like Middleton's missed the last few games. Dame, I think, is clearly playing through something. I know he was dealing with an ankle injury that held him out for a couple of games and he just doesn't look, I know he hasn't really looked like Dame kind of all season, but in particular, the last few weeks has just not looked right. Yeah, and I, so the all star break is hitting at a good time for them. But I
0: also know a lot of people. That I'm,
1: you know, not going to pretend I know
0: enough or I even want to know about Dame's personal. Life, but I know a lot of people have, um, thrown out the fact like he is going through a divorce, and that I think Dame himself even talked about like the personal stuff off the court that he is grateful to the Bucks for being there for him, uh, during. So I. I you know, it is possible that the personal stuff is affecting his play. Again, not going to pretend to know that or speculate about any of that, but I think it's something worth pointing out when talking about this really abnormal, uncharacteristic season he's having.
1: Right. Um, And then it's like, you you know, you take either one of these teams or any of these teams, right? Cavs. Well, probably not the Cavs. I don't see the Cavs sliding, but let's say Knicks, Bucks. Sixers, dealing with injuries, if they continue to deal with them, if they continue to scuffle scuffle for one reason or another, any one of those teams could slide out of the top five. Like right now, the Sixers, to me, look like they're in danger of sliding out of that top five. Like the Pacers right now are two games behind them and the Heat are two and a half back. I mean, yeah. suddenly that throws a wrench into the bracket too, right? Because if Embiid comes back in time for the playoffs and they're like a six or seven seed, then, you know, maybe suddenly the Cavs aren't feeling too great about where, where they finish yeah. uh, in the standings. So there's just a lot of uh, uncertainty and a lot that's up in the air about how those matchups are going to shake out in the East. And I think that's one of the big storylines for sure, looking ahead to the second half.
0: Yeah. And like I said, I mean, that kind of also takes out one of my second half storylines because mine was about if the Knicks can get healthy. Um, If they can, I think we're both on the same page that they might be the second best team in the East at full strength. It's just, they're at a point now where they have enough injuries piled up and most of which are pretty serious injuries that like, it's not like you can just pencil in, okay, well it's fine. They'll get healthy for the playoffs. Like they're pretty concerning. Um, and, And yeah, if they fall to that, or if they stay now in that 4-5 range, or perhaps fall further, you're talking about a team that might be the second best in the East at full strength, also having a very tough path to even get out of the first round. Heck, you know, falling to the play-in, I think, is unlikely, but you never know.
1: If if these guys are out very long... Well, again, so Philly right now is 2.5 up on Miami, and the Knicks are 3 up on Miami, currently in 7th. So those teams are not very far from the play-in fray. With Robinson, if he comes
0: back, I don't think coming back in the regular season. OG out until at least sometime in March. Randall, I don't think there's a timetable, but like he's recovering from a dislocated shoulder, if I'm not mistaken. So like, again, these the types of injuries that it's like, it might be a while till the Knicks are even close to full strength, let alone full strength, with not much margin for error here in, in the standing. So... A uh, very big range of outcomes for this Knicks team based on how beat up they are. But anyway, that question and storyline with the Knicks already covered as part of uh, your second half storyline to watch the East top three race. I'll then take us to the West where I said one of the second half storylines to watch is who gets the West's number one seed. For a while, there was four teams, Minnesota, the Nuggets, the Clippers and the Thunder separated by like a half game or a game. The Timberwolves have started to perhaps put some space between themselves and other teams. They've gotten hot again. The Nuggets have fallen back a little bit. They also went through this weird February-March slide last year. So they are three back now. But for the most part, it's those four teams. It's like Timberwolves, uh, Clippers, Thunder, Nuggets.
1: Three games separating these four teams. I think, I will say, though, so that March slide last year was when they kind of already had the number one seed yes. sewn up. Yes. And I do wonder, I mean, what do you think? Are they being a little bit too cavalier about the regular season right now? I do
0: think so. And that's one thing I was going to mention. It was a big difference last year when they almost had that one seed locked up. When they, out of these four teams, even though they're the defending champions, and we probably have more faith in them come playoff time than any of these other three teams, you could also make the argument that they're the team of these four that might need home court advantage the most, or at least should be gunning for home court advantage the most given that their home court advantage comes with the advantage of altitude. Right. And how, and we know how much that comes into play. They went, what they lost one home game. Yeah, They lost the, the
1: game to Miami in the finals was the only home right. game. They lost Just all posts.
0: 21 and five at home this year. I think second only to the Celtics and very average 15 and 14 on the road. Like, I do think the Nuggets are being a little too cavalier about the regular season this year, and it could very much derail their chances of repeating. Uh, but yeah, that's a second half storyline for me. Which one of those four teams gets the one seed? And also, which one of them ends up in a potential 4-5 or five matchup with Phoenix, assuming the Suns can hold off competition for a top five spot. I think the Pelicans are technically tied with them right now. I still... I. I know the Pelicans are playing great. I would still put my money on the Suns finding a way into that top five, probably finishing fifth. But again, that means whichever of the Wolves, Thunder, Clippers, or Nuggets falls to fourth. And right now, it would be the Nuggets. They'd most likely have to play Phoenix in a first-round matchup.
1: Absolute bloodbath. It's just going to be a bloodbath no matter how the matchups shake out, (laughs) honestly. like I'm looking at the standings right now, and it's like... You know, the play-in would be Dallas-Sacramento-Lakers-Warriors. The play-in. And then you're looking at two of those teams emerging to play Minnesota and OKC in the first round. And right now it would be Clippers-Suns in the 3-6 and Denver-New Orleans in the 4-5. You know, that's the one where I'd be like, yeah, I feel pretty good about Denver in that matchup. But every other one I'd be like, again, the Thunder have been amazing this season they've given us every reason to believe in them but I'm not gonna feel super comfortable picking the Thunder if they match up with Dallas in round one given what we know Luka is capable of in a playoff series and how just he can sort of control every beat uh the way the tempo of a series and like the tenor of it goes like I just think you know we we haven't seen Shea do that before so I just think there's there's not going to be any really easy matchups, and like I'm even as good as Minnesota has been, if the Lakers do kind of get it together and emerge from the play-in, and they're the eighth seed, like how great are we going to feel as you know the as the Wolves facing them down in round one? Like probably not spectacular. Um, so I just think it's going to be a bloodbath almost no matter how it shakes out. I honestly feel and it, and it brings me no joy. <laughs> to say this, even though it was something that I predicted coming into the season, but the one team in this mix that I just don't feel particularly threatened by is Sacramento. Yep. They just feel, I don't want to use the F word cash, but feel a little bit fraudulent to me just, and I thought, I don't know that there was a move out there for them to make at the deadline. So I'm not advocating for them to have done something that, who knows what was available to them and whether it would have been you know too costly whether it would have been a good deal or not but i just have felt for the last year and a half basically that they have a a glaring deficiency that they need to address if they want to be taken seriously as a playoff team and i think they need to upgrade their power forward spot they need to get better defensively they need somebody better than Harrison Barnes as their starting four and unless or until that happens i, I can't feel particularly um enthused about their big picture prospects. So I think it's, you know, they they put themselves in position to potentially make the playoffs for a second year in a row after that 17 year drought. And I think that's great. I still enjoy watching them play, you know, stylistically. They're very fun. Love the pace they play with love Fox. Sabonis is having an amazing year. Like all that stuff is great, but I don't know, man. I, if I'm looking at this field of like 10 teams, any of whom feel like they could kind of win a series in the right circumstances, the Kings are the one where I'm like, I actually don't know about you. Um, Okay. So I mentioned uh, the, the other story, second half storyline that I'm watching for the, the Lakers, warriors and heat. Can these teams get it together? Make a second half push that is convincing enough to make us feel like they're actually a, a playoff threat in the way that they've been in the past. We talked about the Lakers. How have felt about the Warriors since Draymond got back? They're starting him at center. Last night, we saw them start pods and bring Clay off the bench. He had a fantastic game, yeah. kind of until crunch time. Yeah. Um, hit, like, did you see that air ball? Uh, yeah. But other than that, I don't want to like clown him for that because he played oh, he wonderfully. And I know he's been open about the fact that it's been really difficult for him this season coming to grips with what like his his new reality as a player as the aging curve sort of catches up with him and you know he accepts the move to the bench and plays one of his best games of the season, frankly. So kudos to him. But yeah, how do, how do you feel about where this team is at right now with uh I don't know, maybe things starting to coalesce now that they are basically healthy. Chris Paul's still out, um, but you know, Draymond is back and playing really well as their starting five. Um, Kaminga continues to, I think, sort of expand the bounds of what we thought his capabilities were. Um, I think the thing that's impressed me most with Kaminga is like when he first started to get going a few weeks ago, like when we, we really saw this leap from him start to percolate, it felt to me like a lot of the damage he was doing was outside of the flow of the warrior's usual offense. You know what I mean? It was more yeah. him like isoing or posting mismatches or things like that and he was doing it very well, but I think now he's got more of the like his timing on cuts, like he's doing more of that stuff in the flow of the offense, I think, and like more part of the of the whole. And he's still doing like the other stuff where he's kind of like able to salvage broken possessions and just go get a bucket and like working really well in transition. Um, but I think he's now melded that with the Warriors style as well. So like a lot of encouraging science there, but what does that amount to, I guess, from your perspective?
0: Like, I think it amounts to a much more complete team than they looked like they were at the beginning of the season. Obviously getting Draymond back and him playing at the two-way level he's playing again is huge. The fact that Steve Kerr has now made the tough decisions that needed to be probably made with respect to the rotation and the lineups. Like, I think they found something here that looks sustainable for the rest of the year and makes them a very competitive team. It's just they had buried themselves to such a degree in such a stacked conference that, like, you know, what's the upside here, right? Like, yeah, they keep climbing. What are they up to now? They're 10th. Oh, huh. <laughs> all right. 10th, <laughs> right. So it's like,
1: you know, a you game get a... and a w- half behind the ninth place Lakers and... Who
0: are surging, like... The the Warriors can continue to play well the rest of the year and still have to win at least one play a game and maybe two, right? Like it's going to be an uphill climb. And so my big picture takeaway is that like, if they had been playing this well earlier, if things had, you know, coalesced for them and lined up better earlier and they were in a more advantageous position, you could talk me into like, Hey, Steph Curry is Steph Curry and the way other things are lining up around them with the right matchups, but I just think they buried themselves to such a degree that I have a really hard time seeing them win at least one playoff play in game, if not two, then upset one of the top seeds in the West, who, who they, yes, they might have an experience advantage over, and it's like, maybe they get through that, but now they've already probably expended themselves before they even get to the second round, and even that seems like it's a very big hill to climb based on the position they put themselves in, so, yeah, very encouraging for sure. And I completely understand why anyone would look at this team and the way they're playing and with Steph Curry there and say, hey, they always have a chance. I've not taken that away from them, but like they put themselves in a position where I think there's just too much work to do.
1: Yeah, it's going to be tough. I mean, like, again, if the season ended today, it would be them and the Lakers in the 9-10 game and only one of them would even advance. Uh, Basically, the Warriors would have to win two road play-in games just to get the eight seed and then wrangle with the Timberwolves in round one. So yeah, it's definitely an uphill climb to your point, but nice to see things kind of coalescing finally, you know, with, with uh, all the stuff we mentioned, but also like Wiggins playing way better and clay, I think, I don't know. There's, there's still a very valuable contributor in there somewhere, as much as we've seen the struggles and the cracks in the facade as age catches up with him this year. Like, I don't know i think there's still there's still a chance there's still a chance that they can go on a run yep and do something great but yeah they're definitely up against the odds um what about miami
0: Miami, it's like what we talked about earlier I, I think of these three teams are the ones i believe in the most but it's more so just because of the quality of competition in their conference like they have an easier path to another playoff run than the Warriors or Lakers do. And, um, you know, like we know what Jimmy Butler morphs into come playoff time, regardless of how his regular season has gone. They've got, for my money, the best coach in the league. Terry Rozier is now hurt and is out a little while. Which like, like might not be the worst thing in the world. <laughs> listen, his first few games were really rough. I thought he started finding <clears throat> a rhythm right before he got hurt or at least started to look like he belonged more. But, uh, I don't know. Listen, at the end of the day, if you're just asking me what about Miami, I'd say I have the most faith in them of the three, partly because of just how the East shapes up. Which of the top teams in the East do you think the Heat have the best chance of beating? Like Milwaukee again?
1: I almost don't even think it matters. This is what, okay. it's just like, fries my brain when I try to think about it because I can throw out any number of reasons why they shouldn't be able to beat any of these top teams, but it just kind of all goes out the window when I think about the last four years. So that that top five in the East that we've talked about, Cash. Over the last four postseasons, the Heat have played all of them except for Cleveland at least once. They are six and two in series against those those top five teams. Like, I don't know what to do with that because, I mean, there's a lot of things that are confusing about this team. One is they're 11-7 without Jimmy Butler in the lineup this year. Like, they have a better record with him out of the lineup than with him in the lineup. But they're also, like, on the whole, something like five points per hundred possessions better with him on the court. So they've been good in the games that he doesn't play, but in the games that he does play, they've been terrible with him off the floor. So I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with the fact that Rogier was absolutely awful before suffering that knee injury and ultimately I just I felt this way from the beginning. I don't think the hero Rogier backcourt is viable. I think it's too vulnerable defensively. Hero to me is like a much bigger defensive liability than Rogier is. He gets targeted more. He makes more mistakes and more stuff opens up as a result of what they have to do to protect Hero specifically. But with the two of them together, it just, when I've watched it, it has not felt tenable. So I don't know what to make of that, especially if Rogier isn't going to bring that high-end offensive impact, which I don't think he has at all. I don't really feel like he has fit into the heat's offensive structure so much. Like he's kind of off doing his own thing. And now with him injured, they lose this like precious time to pretend to, to potentially work him in, in that way. So I have all these concerns and these reasons why I don't believe in them. But again, I, I, saw what they did last year when they got outscored in the regular season and it didn't matter. So that's why I'm, I'm just scratching my head, I guess.
0: I would pick them to beat Milwaukee in a series right now.
1: Oh, boy. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but that is, like, is that a statement of faith in Miami or a lack of faith in Milwaukee? Little column A, little column B. Yeah. Talk about um, films. The other thing that's weird to me about Miami is... So I, I, we talked, I think, on a previous episode about how Bam's kind of in a different defensive role this year, where they're actually not switching him nearly as much as they did in the past. He's playing a lot more in drop, and then when they zone up, he's obviously on the back line. Like, they're essentially doing more stuff to keep him closer to the basket and switch him out less. They've also shifted his offensive role, where I think over the last few years, we we conceive of the Heat as, like, one of the preeminent dribble handoff teams in the league like they've run a lot of their stuff through these dho actions and that's actually been like in pretty steep decline over the last few years like they're they've gone from in that first season when uh they made the finals when jimmy got there when duncan robinson broke out and when bam broke out uh they were averaging 27 dribble handoffs per 100 possessions and now that's down to 21 and i'm not entirely sure why that is Um, But with Bam specifically, it just feels like it's more it's less of that and more like the kind of short roll stuff, more of him like kind of cutting off ball flashing into space. And like that just leads to him getting a lot of these push shots and like short mid range jumpers. And I don't know if that's benefiting their offense as a whole, as much as I like wrote a whole piece today about Duncan Robinson and like how he's completely changed his game and become a much more adept pick and roll operator doing less of the DHO stuff. I Again, I look at like team wide offense and like they've been bottom 10 for most of the year. They're 22nd right now among teams in playoff or play in spots right now. Only the magic have been worse offensively than Miami. So I don't know. I don't have a good explanation for why that shift has taken place, but with Miami, it's always that I just have a ton of questions. I can't explain them and I can't, I can't dismiss them either. I can't dismiss the possibility that they're going to go on another run in the playoffs. Nor should you dismiss
0: that possibility. And even with respect to their offense, like, you know how this works, man. Come mid-April, that (laughs) offense is just going to be, it's going to be butter.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I guess we'll see. Um, But uh, yeah, that that was them, Golden State, uh, the Lakers, these teams that have been all over the place. And uh, I'm just waiting and watching to see if they can get it together in the second half.
0: All right, my last second half storyline to watch might only be applicable to uh, our fellow Canadians and, and Raptors fans, but it's on a much smaller scale compared to the Mavs trying to keep their top 10 pick last year is can the Raptors keep this top six protected pick that they traded a year ago for Jakob Pertl in a draft class that everyone says is the worst in at least a decade. As it stands right now, the Raptors have the 6th worst record in the league or the 6th best lottery odds. But even that comes with only a 46% chance of keeping their top 6 pick, a 9% chance of winning the lottery, a 37.2% chance of getting a top 4 pick. And really the only other realistic um, landing spot is probably the 7th best odds because they're, I think, a game... You know, ahead of the Grizzlies in the odds race or behind them in the standings, if you want to look at it like that. I mean, they could probably still catch Brooklyn and uh, maybe Atlanta. I don't think they're going to catch Atlanta for the playing spot. Maybe they catch Brooklyn and they finish somewhere between the sixth and eighth best odds. But, like, I don't know. I guess my question to you is Is this even worth paying attention to, even for Raptors fans, based on the fact that even in the sixth best odds situation, The chances are still that they're going to finish outside the top six, sacrifice the pick. And then my other question is, given how bad the draft is reported to be, how much would it bother you, even whether you're looking at this as a Raptors fan or just a general observer, if they'd say give up the seventh pick, but then they also are just done with those obligations.
1: They have access to all the pay. Like, where do you lean on all of this? Well, A, I absolutely think it's worth paying attention to okay, because you have a team that's in free fall that is clearly building for the future that is at very real risk of giving up the number seven pick in the draft. And I come down on the side of if you are looking at what is at this point a guaranteed top 10 pick, I still think... As much as this class has been maligned, as much as you maybe want to get off of the obligation and be freed up to make moves maybe that are in better service of your future without having that obligation dangling over your head, I understand that. I even understand if you want to make an argument that, like, you know, the odds are even if they're better next year, let's say that they wind up with like the 10th pick in next year's draft. Maybe that is preferable to the sixth pick in this year's draft, not only because you might be able to get a better player if that draft is indeed much better than this one, but also, you know, like the, they are a potential cap space team this summer and having a rookie scale deal on the books for a number six pick could actually like meaningfully impact that. It'll meaningfully impact their cap sheet. It'll be easier to carve out something close to max space if they don't have that rookie deal clogging up their books. So I understand all that and I still just think you don't want to be a rebuilding team giving up the number seven pick. You just don't. I I still would rather have that certainty of knowing that like this is a pick that we could have right now that is like going to be in the top six. I'd rather that than have to give up a high lottery pick and, you know, like I, I think there's a chance that Are they could you... turn things around and be a play-in caliber team next year. Agreed. And um, I, I just, w- what they need right now is to acquire as much young talent as they can. And I think it would really, really sting to not come away with anything in the lottery this year, for given the season that they've had.
0: I hear you, but I guess my question would be like, when you say a rebuild, like you don't want to see a rebuilding team give up the seventh pick, is that more just from like an optic standpoint though? Because what, I'm just saying, what if one of these experts and scouts and draft watchers that has been saying for years now, that this 2024 class was going to be abysmal. You can go back to even Masayu Jiri's press conference, that emotional press conference after they traded Pascal Siakam, when he was asked to define this draft class, given all the criticism about it. And his response was he had like a sly kind of wry smile, and then said that he didn't want to say what he really wanted to say because um, Dan Tolsman, who I believe is the Raptors director of scouting, would be very mad. Every indication is that the draft class is just so bad. So my question to you would be, what if one of these experts, for example, said to you, listen, the seventh pick this year might be equivalent to like the 20th pick in an average year, 15th to 20th in an average year. Would it still be as important to you? And that's why I'm one asking, like, is it more just about the optics? If you're just looking at it as like, man, they're a rebuilding team. They can't give up the number seventh pick. But if if the number seventh pick this year is not your traditional number seventh pick, if it's far, far from it, I just don't know how much it moves me or saddens me. I just don't really buy that. Like I, I'm sorry, so I don't, don't. But this, uh, lots of people have said this to me. Like, oh, we don't know that the draft class is that. Bad. And I, listen, I'm with you. I'll be the first to admit I don't watch enough college ball or prospect watching until like June when I yeah. start researching for the draft. But again, we're it's not like we're creating this out of nowhere. The people that do watch, all the experts, the same ones that you know told you. The guys that were going to be good over the last few years that that we knew were going to be good prospects have been telling you this draft class stinks. And I'm not saying that means there's not going to be good players. As Masai Ujiri pointed out in that press conference, Giannis Antetokounmpo was drafted, what? Late lottery, middle of the first round in the last very bad class. So I'm not saying that they wouldn't have an opportunity to draft a good player. I'm just saying I feel like the optics seem worse than what the actual...
1: Facts might be that's part of it, but it's not just that like the the optics will be bad the feeling for fans would be bad of like we just watched a wasted season essentially a tanking year where functionally we have nothing to show for it and like that toothpaste was out of the tube like they they gave up the top six protected pick I hated it at the time it looks even worse now there's nothing you can do about that but it's also like you got to start showing that you're like for the, for the players on the roster, like showing that you're building towards something, whatever they they're going to max out Scotty on like his rookie extension this year. And so,
0: but he's only got one more year of that rookie scale money we
1: talked about. That's very important to try to build while they're on that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I don't know, maybe you're right. You know, maybe, maybe actually if I'm willing to, sort of put my emotions aside. Strategically, the best thing would actually be for them to get off of that obligation this year. Maybe. I think the, the good thing is like, as much as this is worth paying attention to, it's almost not worth investing too much emotion in because it's just going to play out the way that it plays out. Like you mentioned, even if they do get to, or stay at, sorry, number six in lottery odds, there's a better chance than not. Yeah, that they'll get bumped out and wind up giving the pick away. So, and they're not catching Portland. They're four games clear
0: of Portland. Who have the They're not game.
1: catching Portland. And with Memphis, it's almost just a question of, you know, how they handle, say, Bain and Smart if those guys are ready to return. Like, do they actually bring them back or shut them down? Because if they shut them down, as well as the zombie Grizzlies have played, and I've loved watching them, been really inspiring shout out Gigi Jackson shout out Vince Williams shout out all these guys but I think the Raptors would still be hard pressed to out tank that Grizzlies team so it's not worth like investing too much thought or emotion in but I do think it's worth paying attention to because optically or otherwise it would be kind of wild to to see like the way that this Raptors season has played out trading away to Beloved, long-tenured franchise players, as you sink to the bottom of the Eastern Conference standings, and to have no—you know—maybe it's not a pot of gold, maybe it's a pot of shit. If like what people are saying about this draft class is to be believed, but to have nothing at the end of that, like no reward for the slog of a season that you just went through, would feel really bad. It just would. And yeah, I don't know. That's. I, that's, that's, I guess, my, my feeling about all that.
0: No, these, are, these are fair. And your emotions are valid, Joe. I'll be honest. That's it for me for second half storylines. Do you have anything else?
1: I mean, I just the obvious, one, the, like, I think, yeah, uh, the obvious one, but like, I think, yeah, the obvious one, but I do think, you know, now that Embiid is pretty much officially out of the mix, I think it's going to be a pretty fun MVP race that could, to me right now, there are four clear cut candidates. And I think there are some other guys who could get into this mix. Like Kawhi is sort of on the doorstep of it, I feel. Donovan Mitchell, Tatum, KD, um, you know, maybe Steph can get into that mix if he continues to play the way he's played over the last couple of weeks, like Brunson, whatever. But to me, it's between Jokic, SGA, Giannis, and Luka right now. And all those guys are playing out of their minds. Yeah. Like, I, I was critical of Giannis early in the season, especially because I didn't feel like he was playing up to his standard defensively that's changed recently. And he's continued to be unbelievable offensively. Like I think his case is maybe even being slept on a little bit because of how choppy this buck season has been, but I don't put any of that on him. He's been incredible and I think he deserves strong consideration. And obviously we've said all we need to say about Jokic and his candidacy and Shea and man, Luca has been just setting teams ablaze over the last while. So uh, I think that's going to be a fun race down the stretch.
0: Okay, real quick, before we get out of here, you have to pick right now who is your MVP at the All-Star break. Shay. Same. Same. All right. I think this is a g- has been a good way to bring us to the All-Star break. I will say we've gone way too long for us to get into a fan shout-out today, unfortunately, um, but I did just want to acknowledge that a bunch of people like too many to list who we've already shouted out before over the last few weeks have reached out either on Twitter, on Instagram, half joking about like making sure everything's okay because we've consistently been going short and like saying like, oh, like you guys said at the beginning of the year, you want to keep it short. And now you actually, I just want to make sure everything's all right. Or like, why are you keeping it short? Like we actually love the longer episodes. So we didn't plan on it, but for all of you, I guess here is one of our classic Pound the Rock episodes because Wolfon and I are sitting here looking at our recording time at 91 and a half minutes. By the time we edit it, you're probably looking at 85 or something. But uh, anyway, unofficial shout out for all those we've shouted out before who inquired about the shorter episodes. Here's a longer one for you. wolf on's off next week. I'll try to find a guest for next week's episode. We'll get back to fan shout outs. Until the unofficial second half of the season, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Casaro. Pound the Rock.